My name is Josh, as, you, as you've heard, uh, and my wife and I, we have the privilege, uh, privilege of calling this place home. We love it. So thankful for it. About the same amount of time that we've been coming to the church, <clears throat> we've also had the privilege of being parents. Uh, it's, it's an incredible experience. So much fun. Our little girl, Abigail, she's about 16 months old, and she is inexplicably adorable. Okay, I mean, it's like ridiculous. I think we might have a picture of her coming up here pretty soon. I mean, my goodness, that's illegal. Way too cute, right? So she's been such a joy, but I mean, I got I to gotta come up front and, and just be honest with you. It's insane. Having a kid is insane, okay? For example, sleeping in on a Saturday used to look about mm, 9.30 in the morning. Oh, fresh. Feel great. Let me eat a bowl of Cheerios, watch some college football. <laughs> now, if I can wake up and the sun has risen, it's like victory. <laughs> victory. Right? I used to be able to play a lot of like city league sports, intramurals, be you know, active. Now being active is changing about five diapers a day and doing bicep curls with my baby in my arm. She's like she like, loves it the whole time. She's, she's loving it while I'm dying. Um, and then the, this, this is something I've just now recently stumbled upon for the first time. It's been, it's been really fun. But I have the ability now to categorize levels of pain. Okay? Now let me tell you about the first level. We all know this level. The first level is when you, kind of like this morning, you go outside, you have your jacket on, it's crisp outside, really crisp, right? And you're going to reach, with your hand, you reach out, you know what I'm talking about, you reach your car door, zap! You get stung, as it goes through your forearm, like, ah! It's annoying, but you, you know, whatever, you get over it. Second level of pain, here it comes. You walk in and you, boom, stub your toe. You're like, mm, that hurt, right? Okay, then you get the third level of pain. This one's new. This usually happens for me when I'm, just waking up, it's like 2 or 3 in the morning, i got to go use the restroom, we've all been there. you got to go, you got to go to the bathroom, you're walking, you can barely see, your judgment's way off, and then you step on a Lego. <laughs> and you step on that Lego, and you start questioning life's purpose. <laughs> like, what just happened to my foot? Armageddon has come to my left foot. I wake up the next morning and there's like this rectangular bruise, perfectly symmetrical. I'm like, what is this? I mean, I mean I'm exaggerating, of course. This, this whole father and mother thing that we share together uh, is great. It's so much fun. One of the favorite things that Abigail likes to do is watch a show named Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. Who's with me? You know what I'm talking about? Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. And you're like 17 years old. I'm like, yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. I still watch it. I'm with you. Yeah. Uh, well, this, you know, this show is so simple, very simple. It's fun. It's interactive. Great for kids. Pure, clean, all that kind of stuff. And um, it, it, the plot is always, it, it's, not, it's never complicated, right? They're off on their adventure. They're on their way. It's the Mickey Mouse Clubhouse. You know the song just like I do. Don't you? You know it. Right? And, and, but just like any good story, a crisis comes up. Something pops up, an obstacle arises, and to help them along the way, at the beginning of the show, they've been given these helpful tools. Anybody know the name? Toodles, Toodles yes! And Toodles unlocks the Mouska Tools. 
the Mousketools. At first, I, you know, I'm getting, getting in the show with Abigail. I'm like, come on, Disney. Mousketools? The Mickey Mouse Clubhouse Mousketools? Okay, creative. Right. <laughs> so come on. You got something more than that, don't you? All right, so, you but I'm, I'm like so curious. Here I am watching the show. Abigail's with me. Daddy-daughter time. We're looking. And I'm like waiting. Okay, how are these issues? Where are the issues going to come up? And how are they going to use the Mousketools? I'm like glued to the TV. Abigail, meanwhile, has completely lost interest. She's in the kitchen. She's in the kitchen, like, playing with a spatula and measuring cups. And I'm like, oh, I've got to see how this is going to end. I've got to see how this is going to end. And, I mean, and I overanalyze everything. Uh, you know, maybe a little bit of issues happening in my brain. Um, but I, this, this week, I'm, I'm asking myself, does real life work like this? Do we have mouse tools in our back pocket that we can just kind of pull out anytime something, anytime a jam gets in our way? And on a deeper level, I'm asking the question, how do we, or how should we, handle circumstances in our life? How do we handle difficult circumstances in our life? Well, I think as we've been journeying through the story of Acts, it's going to give us a pretty clear clue today in Acts chapter 16. So if you'll turn with me there, if you have a Bible, Acts chapter 16, verse 11. The scripture will also be uh, behind me on the screen. Acts chapter 16. Verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We stayed there. We remained in the city some days. Luke is setting the scene for us, and as Michael mentioned last week, Paul is now on what we call his second mission, or his second missionary journey, and he's, heard, he's had this vision of a man from Macedonia who says, come over here, preach the good news to us. And so Paul follows suit, follows the leading of God. They hop across from Turkey up to Greece, and they get there, and they, and they settle, and they go, and they travel to Philippi. And, and Luke tells us that this is a Roman colony. This is essentially like taking a piece of Rome, right, and transplanting it out of the ground, and, and landing it right in, in northern Greece and Macedonia, and ah, calling it Philippi. They have, they have Roman values. They have Roman customs. They celebrate Roman holidays. They worship Roman deities. And importantly, they worship the Roman emperor, who, who even is self-entitled the Son of God. So we continue in verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Luke is like wasting absolutely no time. It feels like only a few seconds. And we can imagine this group of women who have now gone to a riverside to have what essentially we would consider a Jewish uh, worship service or a service of worship and prayer. They're reciting God's law. They're, they're recounting, retelling Old Testament stories. They're praying Jewish prayers of thanksgiving, maybe reciting a psalm, maybe uh, praying Jewish prayers of repentance. And importantly, they're anticipating a Messiah, a Christ, an anointed one who will come and lead his people in the presence of God. And then these four men walk up, led by Paul, and they share the good news about Jesus Christ. Maybe saying something like this. Let us tell you about a man. His name is Jesus. 
He is the one you've been waiting for. Through his death, through his resurrection, he has secured the forgiveness of sins. He has secured the return of God's presence for his people if you but believe in his name. And Lydia hears this message. She's blown away by this message. This is the one. This is the one we've all been waiting for. This is why we gather as we anticipate this one. The Lord opens up her heart. And and, and so quickly, we have the very first convert on European soil. The very first person to come to faith in all of Europe is a woman. Now to us, that's okay, sure. We have, we, have, we have a society, thank God Almighty, we have a society where men and women are equal. But we're, we're listening to a story, we're in a culture where women are not equal. Even if, she, even if a successful trade woman, she's not considered equal. And if you want to start a revolution for God, you don't go to a woman at this time, you go to a leading official. But no, the gospel of Jesus Christ subverts cultural standards. It takes what we expect and turns it right upside down. Can you testify to that? Right? And so she convinces, Lydia convinces these four men to stay at, their, at her house, and, and her house serves as the home base of the, of the evangelism in the city of Philippi. Things right now are smooth as silk. The gospel is proclaimed, the gospel is received, and the birth of a church takes place in the house of this woman. But we know the story of Acts. We've been in this book for a year, right? We know that things aren't so smooth. A week passes by, two weeks maybe, maybe three. It's again a Sabbath day, and Paul and this group of people are now heading back out to the riverside to have a a prayer service again, but this time it's in the name of Jesus Christ. And in the distance, he sees a woman. Not just any woman, not just any girl, it's a slave girl. And she, we can imagine a slave girl at this time, she has matted hair, maybe a dirty face, uh, bruises on her body from abuse, wretched, torn clothes. And, and this girl's not just any slave girl either. She's a spirit. She, ha- she has been possessed by a spirit of divination, which means that she has the ability to foretell the future. And her owners, the, the people who own this girl, they're making some serious cash because of this fortune-telling business. And so this girl, possessed by the spirit, is, is heading over towards Paul and and the group. We pick up the story in verse 17. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And at first glance, I'm like, sweet. That's exactly what I would want to happen. If if Paul is going to proclaim a brand new gospel, that's what I want other people to say, hey, he's proclaiming the gospel. But not so fast. Remember where we are. We're in a Roman city. We're in a Roman empire. That phrase, most high God, at best, gets a fat question mark. Who is the most high God when you worship multiple gods? And the way of salvation? In Philippi, the way of salvation is the way of the emperor. For he is the one who protects our borders. He is the one who keeps bad people away from us. He is our savior. The emperor is our deliverer. So at first glance, oh, supporting the work of the gospel. But no, if anything, she is supporting the work of confusion. Confusing the people who are hearing Paul's gospel. Now Paul is very intent on being very clear. He has a new and eternal emperor 
the universal emperor, Jesus Christ. And he will have none of this confusion. So we continue in verse 18. She kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. A second episode now of of an amazing demonstration of God's power. First Lydia, now the slave girl, has been, the demon has been cast out of her. It's great news. But there's a problem. And maybe you know the problem. She's a moneymaker. Her owners are, 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 they have profit. They they gain profit from her fortune-telling. So we read in verse 19, But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. Now our missionaries are in some trouble. They're facing some serious opposition. It's God versus money. The gospel of Jesus Christ has been confronted, or it is confronting the greed of these owners. The work of God is being violently rejected by these owners because of what it does to their bank account. And it forces me to ask the question to myself, am I like these owners? Do I support the work of God as long as it doesn't affect my bank account? Do I support the gospel being proclaimed as long as you don't reach into my back pocket and take my wallet? But the gospel is so close. It's so introspective. It digs inside of us and it causes us to question who we are and what we believe and what we do. Verse 22. The crowd now is joining and attacking them and the magistrates tore the uh, garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Paul and Silas are committed to God's work, and they get pummeled for it. They get crushed. It's a a sad scene. This, This Roman mob is smothering them to death. Right? They're ripping their clothes off of them and they're falsely accusing them. If there's anything you want to do to upset Roman leadership, it's to say that these men are causing a rebellion. They're disturbing our city. So that's what they say. And when they hear that, it's an automatic guarantee of severe punishment. And if you're Paul and Silas, you can almost see them coming at you. You can see the police headed your way, rods in hand. And they wail at them. They beat them to the ground. Can you imagine open flesh wounds, fractured ribs, bacterial infections, dried blood, an awful, gruesome scene, all because of their outward embrace of the gospel. The reality of Jesus Christ was leading them into opposition. It was leading them into intense hatred. And so when we zoom out, we see that when we are committed to doing God's work, when we are proclaiming this gospel, 
I can, I, we will often experience opposition. We're often going to experience discomfort. And that's why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 1, 22, for the Jews demand signs, the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly, idiocy, hogwash to the Gentiles. And it's because of this now, Paul and Silas are in the, the inner cell. They're in the, what we would consider the maximum security cell to make sure that they can't get out. All for the work of the gospel. Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Okay, time out. They're doing what? Hashtag stop it. Hashtag you can't be serious. I mean, come on, does real life work like this? Does real life work like this? These men have been beaten down to the ground and they're worshiping God? Fools. They're delusional, aren't they? Are these men not idiotic for worshiping God in the midst of being fastened so tightly to the ground? They're on their butts and and their, their legs are fastened by wooden stocks. They can't move. And here they are singing hymns and praying to God. But we've seen this before. We've seen this throughout the journey of Acts. There is joy in the journey. You hear me? There is joy in the journey. Paul remembered. It's an incredible story. Paul remembers Acts chapter 9. He didn't call it Acts chapter 9. We call it Acts chapter 9. He remembers that day. Sorry, I got caught up. He remembers that day. He remembers that day when Jesus Christ appeared to him in the sky, a brilliant light blinding him for three days, completely transforming his life. He remembered the apostles like Barnabas teaching him about Jesus. Teaching him about what Jesus was teaching and what he was preaching and healing the sick. He remembers the stories of Jesus' death, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension to the right hand. The message of Jesus Christ had so thoroughly revolutionized their life, so thoroughly revolutionized their life, but they could not help but worship in the midst of a terrible circumstance. The gospel had, had... changed the very fabric of who they were. It had changed it had changed their identity. And this is where our story heats up a bit. They're in the jail cell. Things begin to move. Pebbles are beginning to skip on the ground. The ground is beginning to shake. Violence falls upon this jail cell. Verse 26. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. This mayhem is, is taking place, this craziness 
is taking place. But Luke zones in like a sniper on the life of the jailer. The only person we can see right now is the jailer. And he wakes up out of his stupor and the, and the, and the prison doors are open. The, the prisoners got it. They, have to, they must be gone. This is it. This is the end of my life. If I let one of these men go under my guard, under my command, it's over for me. This situation led him to suicidal thoughts. He wanted to end his life because he thought these prisoners were gone. But then we got Paul. And he is an exemplar of all people. I mean, he is an incredible example to follow right here because in the midst of his persecution, in the midst of mayhem, he has an acute awareness, an acute judgment. He sees what's happening to this jailer and he says, do not harm yourself for we are all here. Verse 29. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and says, listen to this question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds and he was baptized at once. He and all his family. This church is growing. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. What a fantastic turn of events. Paul and Silas are literally trapped and unable to move in the middle of a jail. An earthquake miraculously occurs by the hand of God. This man's about to kill himself. Paul, in his awareness, stops him. Do you see what has happened? A catastrophe has led to a conversion. You have to ask yourself the question, when I'm going through a catastrophe, are my thoughts, are my actions, and the way that I display my life and the beliefs that I have, do those things lead to other people's lives being changed? Or am I so here that I can't see anything but my terrible problems? But this is the power of the gospel. This man and his family get saved. They know and believe and live for Jesus. And so interesting because Paul writes to this church right before he dies, maybe three, five years before he dies. And one of his climax statements in his letter to these people, (laughs) rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. The power of the gospel being displayed. And that's really what this story is about. That's what we're doing here. You've got to ask yourself, why, why Luke? Why put this here? Are you simply just recounting events? So that we know what happened back in the day? No, 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 no. It's deeper than that. Luke is sending a message to the people reading his book. He's sending a message to you. He's sending a message to me. And I think this is the message. This is it. This is the point. The gospel of Jesus Christ 
has the power to overcome obstacles and transform lives. You with me? The gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to overcome obstacles and transform lives. But we've got to ask the question, is that true? Is that really true? Can we say that? Do we hold to that, that the gospel has power? It's a very difficult question. It's an inward question. Do we believe that the gospel, and do we believe that the good news, do we believe the God-man, Jesus Christ, is simply a teddy bear? He's wimpy. He's, he's nothing. He's something I can celebrate on Sundays, and it means nothing else Monday to Saturday. Or is he more than that? He's more than that. We can testify that he's more than that. So how do we handle this story? How do we live out this story in our everyday lives? Just a few things. First, I can almost guarantee that obstacles are going to come. I'm I'm in my mid-twenties. I haven't experienced serious, serious things that knock me down off my feet. Some of you have. Some of you who have lived this life, it has been incredibly painful. And you can testify to this, that obstacles come. Things happen. Life is difficult. It's, there's heartache. There's sadness. There's stress. There's loneliness. There's even depression. But I say this so gently and with utmost respect. God is not here to fix my problems. He is here to transform me through my problems for his glory. God is not here to fix our problems. He is here to transform us through our problems for his glory. So some of you might be thinking, man, I can identify with Paul. I can identify with Silas. I feel like I'm in a prison But it's not a prison that I've been in for only 8, 10, 12 hours like these guys were. It's been a prison that I've been in for a decade. What do you have to say to me? This isn't 8 hours of stress. This This is a decade of heartache. What do you have to say to me? I think that this story says to us, the way that we handle these circumstances, the way that we handle extreme difficulty, is to meditate on the cross. You're like, what? That's it. What? Meditate on the cross. To, to look so intent. I don't mean meditate like, mm, I mean like much more, much more uh, an intense focus. A fixation that I cannot take my eyes around. As I surround my entire life, as I surround my entire life, the only thing I'm doing is fixing my eyes on Jesus Christ. Because we realize that gimmicks don't work. Mousecatools are a joke, aren't they? I mean, it's fun for my kid, but it doesn't work in my life. The gospel, much deeper, much bigger. It's all-encompassing. It gets into every single little crevice in my heart, and it digs out the dirt, and it redeems every single inch. And so we cannot let the circumstances of this life 
steal the joy that we have in Jesus. We cannot let the circumstances in this life, I say this with utmost respect, I know some of you are going through hell on earth right now, and I, I, I understand, and I respect that, and that's completely valid. But we cannot let the circumstances of this life determine or steal the joy that we have in Jesus. In fact, it has to be completely opposite. The joy that we have in Jesus transforms us in our circumstances. Many of you have heard the song. Uh, I, mean, I grew up, my church sang this like every Sunday. Didn't care about it then, but I love it now. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. That is the bread and butter of the everyday Christian life. One last thing. If you don't know God, you don't follow, you don't subscribe to a life that's in like this gospel. First of all, you're asking, what is the gospel? You use the word 20 times. Also, very valid question. If you don't subscribe to that, you're not ready to commit. That You don't, you don't want to be forced upon. This is, this is too encroaching. Get off of me. I don't want this. I don't want this. Back off. If you're not ready to commit, my advice is don't. We're not here as a church to force you into anything. That's the last thing that the agenda of this place is. We don't want to force Jesus Christ upon you by any means. That's not our heart. That's not our place. But do know, please know, that this story is about you. And that this story is for you. Maybe you're the Philippian jailer. Unsuspecting. But Christ redeems. Maybe you're Lydia, close to God. You kind of understand God. You even pray to God. Maybe you're the slave girl, completely transformed. Literally transformed. There's going to be people in the four corners of this room here in about three, five minutes. And those are the kind of people you can ask these questions to. If you, if you have opposition to the gospel, if you don't like it, you're not sure about it, you have questions, those four people are there to answer those questions. They're not going to do anything that's uncomfortable for you. You say stop, they stop. You say you ask them to pray, they pray. They only do what you, they're here for you completely. So ask tough questions. Ask the hard questions. And if they have the answers, they'll give them to you. And if they don't, they say, I don't know. But this story is for Christian and non-Christian And again, the centerpiece of it all, the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to overcome obstacles and transform lives.